Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Today is Sunday, February 2nd, 2014. The share ID number for Friday, January 31st is 5848. This morning, A Vision for You presents Chapter 4, We Agnostics. Once you've accepted step one, admitting that you're powerless over food and that your life has become unmanageable, you realize that to continue compulsive overeating means disaster. So does continuing to rely entirely on yourself to stop compulsively overeating. Now, if you already know that you can't rely on yourself, then your choices narrow down to either relying on some power greater than yourself or being doomed to a compulsive overeater's death. These aren't easy alternatives to face, but they're the only ones you've got. If you truly want to recover from the illness of compulsive overeating, you've got to have a spiritual experience. Chapter 4 of the big book, entitled We Agnostics, describes, discusses, and explains the need for a power greater than oneself as the solution to our problem. Here to further explain and develop Chapter 4, We Agnostics, is Esther C., a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Toronto, Canada. Esther is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, and a vision for you, dedicated to carrying this message of recovery to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. And it is now my great pleasure to welcome Esther to the line. Good morning. Good morning, Leah. Thank you. Good morning, my friends. My name is Esther C. from Canada, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm delighted this morning to share with you my experiences with Step 2 and what I've learned in the in Chapter 4, titled We Agnostics. I, I lived over three decades of my life in the clutches of the disease of compulsive overeating. I came to, into the rooms of OA in the spring of 2007, as desperate as only the dying could be, like the big book says. And for about three years, I used the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous as a sort of spiritual support group to go along with my new way of eating called abstinence. It definitely worked to help me lose weight, but it did not relieve me of the obsession with food, and so I wasn't able to stay absent long-term. I finally found a recovered compulsive overeater, someone described by the big book, someone, someone in whom the problem had been solved, who would take me through the steps as they're outlined in the big book, and with God's abundant kindness and mercy, I completed the steps, and I experienced slowly that coveted psychic change that's first mentioned in the doctor's opinion. Now, before I say anything about we agnostics, I just want to orient us as to where we are in the step process when we read this chapter. And this is something I often do, even when sharing at a meeting, because I find that when we focus on a line or a paragraph, we could lose ourselves in it and forget we, where we are in the timeline of recovery. So way back at the beginning of the big book in the chapter titled Doctor's Opinion, I learned about the dual nature of my disease. And then after reading Bill's story, chapter one and identifying with it, then writing my own stories of compulsive overeating, I came to the conclusion of step one. I now know what my problem is. And my problem is that I'm powerless over food, my life is unmanageable, 
and I can no longer eat that way anymore. I can't eat those foods anymore. So now that I know what my problem is, what's my solution? So step two teaches us what the solution is. The solution is that a power greater than myself is going to restore me to sanity. The way that it's worded in the step is, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So there are three chapters in the big book that are devoted to teaching me more about step two. Chapters two, three, and four. In chapter two, the one that's titled, There is a Solution, the one that we just began studying now um, in our weekday step study, uh, book study, just does, it, it does that just that. It teaches me that the solution to my problem, and I'm going to paraphrase the paragraph at page five, uh, 25, it teaches me that the solution to my problem lies in a spiritual experience that's going to revolutionize my attitude towards life and that God would commence to accomplish those things for me which I could never do by myself. Specifically, believing in the desire to eat compulsively. A power greater than ourselves is going to restore us to sanity. So that's chapter 2, tells us what the solution is. Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, gives us some vivid and, I think, tragic examples of the insanity of the disease. So just in case we think we're not quite as off the mark as the big book says we are, that we're not insane, this chapter is going to convince me that when it comes to compulsive overeating, there is nothing normal or sane about my behavior. And then comes chapter 4, We Agnostics, and that's the chapter I wanted to share my experience with today. This is the part of step 2 that reads, Came to Believe. Okay, so now I know I'm insane, and I know that the answer is belief in a higher power, but how am I supposed to do that? Just how do I come to believe? Well, that's what this chapter is going to do for us. It's going to help us to come to believe by clarifying some ideas and so that everyone is able to jump this hurdle. So whether you're an atheist or agnostic or even a believer, a religious person, this chapter has something to teach you. So I'm going to share with you what I learned and also what some of my experiences were of course, it's going to differ from some of yours, as i found that there are as many unique experiences out there as there are people. I also found it best when it comes to this step, actually all the steps, but especially this step, to have in mind that wise advice to keep it simple. It's so easy in a chapter like this one to get lost in endless philosophical discussions, right? That's the topic. So what I found worked best for me was to keep the idea simple. So this isn't going to be Theology 101 today. It'll be more like Step 2 for dummies, real simple ideas for simple-minded people like me. So here I'm just going to digress a bit from the chapter to tell you a bit about my own experience with a higher power until I came to this step. Um, when I was growing up, I always believed in God, as did you know my family and friends, etc. And we believed in what you would call the traditional way. But what I thought was, that God was in charge of the big things in life. Miracles, nature, natural disasters, world wars, things like that. But that basically I would have to run my own life, be self-sufficient, and that with enough hard work, willpower, and things like that, I would also have a good life. I treated God like a grand helper of sorts. You know, God, I can manage on my own, thank you. But if I needed help with something that I couldn't do or that my parents couldn't help me out with, I turned to God for assistance, right? Like, please, God, help me pass that test. Or, please, God, could you make all those girls in the class want to be my friends? And I'd usually make a promise of some sort, you know, to be good or not to bug my sister too much or to be respectful to my parents, which I hoped would lubricate my request, right? Make make my rec- request go to the top of the priority pile in the heavens. And that's basically 
how I treated God. I treated him like a gumball machine. Here's my quarter, now give me my gumball. And as I got older and my disease got worse, I was beside myself with frustration and despair because I didn't know how I could get rid of this food problem. How am I going to get rid of this food problem? I've had enough. And nothing that I've been able to do now, until now, has helped. I asked God to please take away my food problem. Please, please, I was desperate to get rid of this problem. I didn't know what I needed to do to get God to get rid of this this albatross. What is going to be the key to my redemption? Now, I wouldn't say that I was angry at God or anything like that. I just thought that God was a little slow or that maybe I needed to figure out how to get him to do what I wanted. Maybe I thought I needed to promise something real big. And for some reason, at this stage of my life, I had this idea that if I was a better person and if I took my religious practices more seriously, then surely God would answer my prayers, right? Self-centered addict that I was, I decided I wasn't going to bribe God. And so more than 15 years later, by the time I came into the program of recovery, I was a seriously religious person, a person very committed to living a more life, who was killing herself with food and watching every part of her life turn to dust in her hands. And so when I came into the rooms, I was very happy to hear that this was a spiritual program since I thought, hey, I already know so much about spirituality. This is great. I do the God thing really well. As a matter of fact, deep down, I thought, what are all these people going to teach me? Anyway, so I started my step work, and in step one, I admitted complete defeat. And then when it came to step two, my sponsor and I came to this chapter, and again, I was wondering what there was for me to learn in it, right, because I'm not an agnostic or an atheist. But more importantly, Really, I was wondering why all the spiritual work I had done had not helped me until this point. And so she answered my question with a quote from the big book. It's not in this chapter, but I'll read it anyways. It's page 93. It says there in your big book, page 93, your prospect may belong to religious denomination. That's me. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. That's me. In that case, he's going to wonder how you can add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. So clearly, having faith alone is not enough, and we're going to see where in this chapter we're going to learn about that. But I also want to read another quote which, from the AA 12 and 12, which so aptly describes people like me. Um, Again, people who come in with, you know, deep religious convictions but still can't stay out of the food. And that's on page 32 in the chapter titled, of of course, Step 2 in the AA 12 and 12. There the paragraph reads, This answer has to do with the quality of faith rather than its quantity. This has been our blind spot. We supposed we had humility when really we hadn't. We supposed we had been serious about religious practices when upon honest appraisal we found we had only been superficial, or, going to the other extreme, we had wallowed in emotionalism and had mistaken it for true religious feeling. In both cases, we had been asking something for nothing. The fact was, we really hadn't cleaned house so that the grace of God could enter us and expel the obsession. In no deeper meaningful sense had we ever taken stock of ourselves, made amends to those we had harmed, or freely given to any other human being without any demand for reward. We had not even prayed rightly. We had always said, grant me my wishes, instead of, thy will be done. The love of God and man we understood not at all. Therefore, we remained self-deceived and so incapable of receiving enough grace to restore us to sanity. 
So that was definitely an accurate description of me when I joined OA. While I may have had deep spiritual convictions, I was quite a selfish person. So now let's get back to the chapter. Okay, if you want to follow along in the big book, you could uh, pull it out now. I'm not going to be reading every paragraph because it's quite long, but we're going to go through in order and discuss some of the idea. So the chapter, We Agnostics, begins on page 44, and it opens with some bad news. <laughs> okay, the bad news is that only a spiritual experience is going to save us if we're true compulsive overeaters. Otherwise, we are doomed to what they call an alcoholic death, we also have compulsive overeaters' death, but perhaps we die a little slower. So there's no door number three, like we always talk about, right? It's either uh, die or accept a spiritual solution. And for some of us, that's really bad news. So the authors are going to painstakingly try to help us all come to believe in a higher power. This chapter was written to help all readers overcome any obstacles to that belief. That's the objective here. And although I was already a believer in God when I came to this program, and my initial reaction was to skip over this chapter, it's good that I didn't. Because this chapter taught me a number of critical ideas that I want to share with you, but it also enabled me to develop a respect and tolerance for everyone's conception of a higher power, both of those that I were to work with in the future and also the other fellows in the rooms. And in addition, later on in this chapter, I was to learn why all my belief and religious practice wasn't helping me. So beginning on page 45... Um, the big book is addressing the one who does not believe. And the first thing the big book is going to do is going to sympathize with him or her. On page 45, the third paragraph, it says, We know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. And the big book is going to elaborate on all the negativity and skepticism that the agnostic or atheist may feel, may be feeling excuse me, upon mere mention of the word God. But over on the next page, page 46 in the first paragraph, the big book reassures the non-believer. You don't have to believe anything right now. Once he's able to even express a willingness to believe, you commence to get results. I read that here. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and even express a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. So that's the relief, right? Because that makes it a little bit more manageable. And the next paragraph, paragraph 2, the same page, page 46, provides us even more comfort from the authors. They're telling us we can even choose our own conception of God. It says in the big book, much to our relief, we discovered that we did not need to consider another conception of God, which means also, that we can discard any conception of God that we've had until this point that isn't working for us. If you'll recall, way back in Bill's story, Chapter 1, as Bill was bristling at his memories of his childhood religious experience, his friend Ebby suggested him to choose his own conception of a higher power. So that helped Bill very much at that time, and it helped him overcome that obstacle to belief. And Bill's a very generous fellow, and he helps out by giving us all sorts of Names and euphemisms for God. In case the word God bothers you, he makes things easier for the atheist and agnostic or, and everybody else. And I want to list some of the names he uses um, to describe God or higher power, both in this chapter and uh, also in uh, Bill's story in particular. He uses the term higher power, supreme being, creative intelligence, spirit of the universe, realm of the spirit, um, 
friend, presence of God, great reality, universal mind, spirit of nature, creator, father light, and I think a few more. So again, this is all the goal of the chapter is to help us to come to that point where we are willing to believe, and this is one of the ways that he helps us. So if we move along to page 42, the second paragraph, there are more reassurances from the authors. I'll read the entire paragraph. We need to ask ourselves but one short question. Do I, be- do I now believe, or am I even willing to believe, that there is a power greater than myself? As soon as a man can say that he does believe, or is willing to believe, we emphatically assure him that he is on his way. It has been repeatedly proven among us that upon this simple cornerstone, a wonderfully effective spiritual structure can be built. So, this paragraph is teaching us that all we need right now in this step is the willingness to believe. That's where we make a start. Now, this is not easy coming to believe for many who come into the 12-step rooms. Many compulsive overeaters come into the rooms as atheists and agnostics. The big book even teaches us that half of their original fellowship was of that type. And the others understand that are going to be serious blocks to the idea of a higher power. Many people have no tolerance for spiritual matters. Many of our members have scientific intellectual upbringings, and they bristle at the idea of a higher power. And knowing this, the big book suggests three ideas to consider which may help one overcome his opposition to this idea. So the next eight eight pages of this chapter give us several compelling reasons why we, the atheist or agnostic, should be willing to consider the concept of a higher power. You should note that no one is trying to convince us of anything. They're just helping us. The big book teaches, in this respect, alcohol was a great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. So the big book doesn't have to work. It works hard to to give us ideas to help us overcome. But at the end, um, we know that we're going to have no choice. The big book will suggest some ideas for us, but in the end, the fridge the freezer, the pantry, those are going to be the great persuaders for us. So let's begin on page 48, where the big book says to us, the reader may still ask why he should believe in a power greater than themselves. We think there are good reasons. Let's have a look at some of them. So reason number one, and that starts on page 48. There, the next uh, few pages, the big book talks about um, the first thing that will, ha- the first idea that will help you overcome any obstacles. And that is that there are many scientific occurrences, the big book teaches, that cannot be explained. But because they work, we believe in them, right? The big book gives examples of electrons, etc., and how it and other matters of science that cannot be explained, but we believe in them and we make use of those theories, even if we can't understand them or explain them. We all, recovered compulsive readers, agree on the following point, right? And page 50, the third paragraph, it says, On one proposition, however, these men and women are strikingly agreed. Every one of them has gained access to and believes in a power greater than himself. This power has in each case accomplished the miraculous, the humanly impossible. So here too, each of us recovered alcoholics are urging you to accept our theory that only a higher power could save you. It worked for us. We all agree on it. We can't exactly explain it, but we urge you to consider the idea. On the next page, this this idea continues. On the next page, it says, page 51, when many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a, a powerful reason why one should have faith. So these people have recovered. So many of us have recovered. We're not eating compulsively. 
Our lives have been transformed. We've been transformed. And this is something we can't explain except to say that it happened to us. So therefore, the agnostic and the atheist should try it as well to, uh, to adopt this way of living, to become willing to believe, because it's working for us and it's worth trying out. So that's the first reason, that they, they ought to try things even though they can't be explained. Reason number two, another idea that the big book gives for us, again, to help us overcome that hurdle of coming to believe, begins on page 51. And there, the next couple of pages, the big book teaches us the following idea, that in order for us to find an idea that works, we need to challenge some of ideas that aren't working. So the big book gives the examples of the Wright brothers and Columbus, both of whom had to challenge the thinking of their times in order to better the world somehow. It's not that they were smarter than men of previous generations, but rather that they were able to liberate their minds, their thinking, and that this is the basis of, prog- of progress. So we also have the same thing. We're also stuck in our personal problems, and we need a better solution, right? On page 52, beautiful paragraph, we call these the bedevilments. We're also stuck in our problems. We have to ask ourselves, and I'm reading the paragraph on page 52, we have to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. Was not a basic solution of these bedevilments more important than whether we should see newsreels of lunar flight? Of course it was. So if we want to solve our problems, our our drinking problem, our eating problem, we need to liberate our thinking as well. We need to examine our old way of thinking. Maybe this higher power idea works. And so that's the uh, second reason that the big book offers to help us, again, overcome the hurdle of coming to believe. And now I'll move on to the third idea the big book suggests, and that begins at the bottom of page 53 and continues at the top of page 54. There the big book teaches that despite our protestations, we have believed in some things greater than us. There it writes, had we not worshipped people, sentiments, things, money, ourselves, had we not worshipfully beheld a sunset, the sea, or a flower, who of us has not loved something or somebody? How much do these feelings have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. And then I'm going to move down to the bottom of the page. Hence, we see that reason is not everything. So the agnostics and the atheists have really not been living with reason alone as they think they have. We have all at some point believed in something. And this idea that we, that all of us really believe or have believed in something segues nicely into the next idea, and that is that we learn that really belief is part of our makeup. So on page 55... I'll read two paragraphs, paragraph two and paragraph three. Actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. 
We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it's only there that he may be found. It was so with us. Excuse me. Wow. We all have this idea in us, meaning that the higher power idea doesn't mean it's in the sky someplace far away. Higher power, higher, means greater. It's greater than me. And it's always been there, in me, in all people, in all times. Sometimes it's obscured by my huge ego. Sometimes it's buried by, buried by calamity. Or it may go unnoticed as I run to worship other things. But it's there. It can be felt as a presence, an inspiration, or whatever we like to call it. Many of us have felt this power on occasion. I know that I have. So if lack of power is my dilemma, where and how am I going to find this power? Where will I find it? We just read it in this paragraph, deep down in me. And how will I find it? By searching fearlessly. So really, each of us have what we need to come to believe. And the only thing that step two asks of me is to believe. I don't even have to have faith yet. I just need to believe that a higher power can restore me to sanity. Then I'm going to make some decisions based on that belief and take actions based on those decisions, right? Step three through nine. And when it works and I'm restored to sanity, then my faith is going to begin to blossom and develop. So the question is, is, am I willing and am I fearless? This chapter ends with a true story of one of uh, the early AAs and his coming to believe in. It's a great read and it's interesting, but I won't read it today. And after studying this chapter, I understood what my problem was. I may have had a higher power and believed that he could restore me to sanity, but my ego blocked me from him and I had no access to my higher power. A higher power that I can't access is useless for me. It's not going to help me solve my problem because I can't get to that power. I'm still going to be powerless, right? It's like an ambulance. If the road to my house is blocked, then the ambulance or the paramedics can't save my life, and so it's like having no ambulance. Now, for many people, these ideas are new, and perhaps the idea of a higher power is uncomfortable for some, but what's our alternative? What's our alternative? Do we have a choice? What does the big book tell us? The big book tells us whether or not we have a choice Page 53, paragraph 2. When we became alcoholics, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, we could not postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he is nothing. God either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? So we need to ask ourselves, are there any other options? Are there any other options? And the big book teaches us really that if we're real compulsive overeaters, we don't have any other options. So back to my story. When I finished studying this chapter, my sponsor had me write a couple of paragraphs summarizing the conclusion of step two. And then, and then nothing. She said I was ready to move on in the book. And I have to tell you, I was a little bit disappointed. Where were the fireworks, the lightning bolts, that that feeling of standing atop of a tall mountaintop with the wind rushing through my hair? I expected there to be, I don't know, some kind of breathless excitement, uh, deep emotional surge or blissful uplift. I mean, this is step two. It's higher power, belief, all that stuff. And I was reassured by my sponsor that all that is required of me in step two is to be willing to believe. At this point, I didn't have to have great love for him or feel his love for me. I don't have to want to pray. I don't have to know how to pray. I don't even have to know how to meditate or have any deep understanding of this higher power. I just have to be willing to begin a relationship with the higher power. So I spent the next few weeks finishing up the steps, and then I was to build on that relationship with my daily deposits, my daily work, which would eventually bring me closer to God. 
Now, looking back, after a few years of recovery and nurturing this relationship to the best of my ability every day, I realized a couple of things. The first thing that I realized about me is that I'm not really a mountaintop type of gal. Of course, unless I'm biting into a York peppermint patty. Remember that commercial? But really, those type of experiences are not really my style. But secondly, and more importantly, I learned that inspiration was great for giving me a boost, but that ultimately my relationship and, and, and of course, my access to God's power was going to be built slowly by perspiration, right, not by inspiration. Day in, day out, doing the real simple things that I'm supposed to be doing. And no one's ever going to know if I prayed or not, and no one's going to know if I rushed through my meditation or not, or if I persistently removed those things that blocked me from God. My reliance upon the higher power is going to be reflected in the degree of my serenity. Because there are, for me, there are no shortcuts to God. And, and for me, substance is going to get me a lot further than sizzle. But of, of course, all that's in hindsight. If you're here at step two, keep it simple. All you've got to do to get, to this, to get this cornerstone in place is to walk over that bridge of reason towards the shore of faith into what the big book calls a new land. And you know what you're going to find there? You're going to find us your fellows, your fellow recovered compulsive overeaters who will greet you with friendly hands outstretched and welcome. I thank you so much for listening, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Esther, for bringing to life Chapter 4, We Agnostics. We appreciate your revealing study this morning. Now we open the floor for any questions related to Chapter 4, We Agnostics, or any questions related to Step 2. And you can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute on your phone keypad. Good morning, Leah. It's Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Go ahead. Thank you very much. Esther, thank you so much. It was wonderful to hear you talk about your experience with this chapter in Step 2. I really appreciated it. Um, I wonder if at the very end of your uh, talk today you said it's only in hindsight that you know it works and um, all you had to do was do the simple things that were outlined for you, perhaps by your sponsor or from the book. Um, I wonder if you could say what those simple things are that you do on a daily basis to continue to nurture your relationship with your higher power. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for your question. So basically, whatever the big book teaches me, which simply speaking would be steps 10, 11, and 12, um, so 10 would be involved cleaning up the things that block me from him, and 11 would be connecting with, with God on a daily basis. And, of course, 12th step is carrying the message. Uh, that's really the skeleton of what I was referring to. I don't know if you were asking something more detailed. Uh, just uh, perhaps a little bit more. I know for me the the challenge is, to do enough on step 11 on a daily basis, given all my worldly concerns and so on. Uh, I always ask myself, am I really uh, touching that relationship with my higher power enough on a daily basis? So I would say that for me, um, 
step 11 was, was one of the harder steps for me to do. <clears throat> That's the meditation because my my nature is to be uh, on the go and to find a thousand and one things to distract me and to keep me <laughs> um, distracted from from you know being God centered. <clears throat> so personally, what I do is in the morning, I have a half hour set aside for meditation. It's the very first thing I do. I get up, I you know wash up, and then I do my meditation. But I have to tell you, today it's a half hour. When I started, it was five minutes. And I, and I remember my sponsor was very patient with me. And she said, Esther, make a start. So we started with five minutes. And, you know, and everyone around me was telling me about all these amazing experiences they had in books they read. And I, and I just started with five minutes. And in those, today it's up to a half hour, and that's probably where I'm going to stay for a bit. And I divide that time with, um, you know, in my, in my, um, Thinking about God is spending some time, think, you know, thinking of the gratitude of, you know, about my life, um, asking God to give me direction for the day. But at the very beginning of that half hour, I spend some time just contemplating like deep things, you know, what what God means, the universe, you know, uh, life, uh, things like that, and sort of working up a, a bit of a spiritual my spiritual juices for for the day. Um, and the other thing I learned from my sponsor that meditation doesn't have to be, you know, sitting in a yoga position in the dark with your eyes closed. It would be anything that would connect me with um, my higher power. And I was very happy and grateful that she taught me that because although I do have my quiet time in the morning, I spent other parts of the day where I could do meditation, um, you know, like spontaneous meditation when I'm awake and I'm busy with something. So, for example, I find just that before I eat to be a, a special time for meditation, if I look at my plate and then I think of, you know, the fact that the, the availability of food, that I was able to afford it and that it was, it's so simple to prepare today, not like it used to be. And, you know, you know, there, I don't know, there are hundreds of varieties of just apples and just, the, you know, just to think about God's greatness and, and, and power, just as I'm sitting to eat, uh, if I have, you know, when the weather's a little nicer here and I'm out there and see the blooming flowers, the trees in the fall, you know, there are so many uh, times of the day where I can just stop and think about God's greatness, the beauty of nature, just and, and just the generosity that all this is ours to enjoy. That also helps you. But that's more spontaneous. I would say that only happens two or three times a day, but I know that, you know, without a doubt that that morning meditation has to happen. Yeah. Thanks so much, Esther. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Kathy, for the question. Who's next? Hi, Liz. Liz in New Hampshire. Hi, Liz. Go ahead. Esther, thank you so much. You are so clear, and I greatly appreciate your explanation of the chapter. I want to ask you um, how you deal with uh, um, people who have questions about the word sanity, because I've come across that a lot. Um, You know, whether or not they're really insane um, with food or whether there really is a question of being insane um, and whether you could address that word, that question. Uh, thanks. Thanks for your question, Liz. So I think the medical community has a way of defining insanity, and I, I don't really know what that is, but the big book, um, when they talk about being insane, they're not talking, I don't think, about a specific diagnosis but they mean um they mean just our relationship with food and that uh I I know that we have the definition of insanity that we often give when we're reading that chapter and I don't remember offhand what it what it is but it 
are you asking me if other people disagree with um, my definition of insanity, therefore they don't think I'm insane or that they don't think they're insane? I'm not sure which one you're asking. I, I think I think there are there are often is, I, I've run across people who question the 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 fact that they're question the word, use of the word sanity that I'm not insane I'm fine I just have a problem with food that's uh-huh. what I'm getting around. Okay, so I I would direct them to page um, the beginning of the chapter more about alcoholism and page thirty page thirty one and just have them read it and say. They're describing the insanity. As a matter of fact, they read the whole chapter. Does this sound like you? Because if it is, then according to the you know Big Book's definition, you would be insane. But I don't uh, I don't work on convincing people of anything because let the food do that, right? My job is just to teach what I've learned and, and show them what I've done. And if they're not convinced, then then you know maybe they should go back out and and try something else or or you know, eat some more. All I could do really is direct them to the big book and what I've learned. Liz, thank you for the question. Who's next? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Sherry, Compulsive Reader. Hi, Sherry. Go ahead. Um, thanks for um, sharing today. Uh, I was wondering about your 11th step, if you do anything at nighttime. Like I know taking a 10th step throughout the day, but um, if you do um, any sort of meditation or um, the reflective, um, um, reflecting our day at the at the nighttime. And uh, I know for me oftentimes I'm so tired, so if I, you know, I don't know. um, Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Thanks for the question, Sherry. So um, the way I understood the nighttime review was that it was part of my 10th step. Again, having a look at the day and see, you know, what worked, what didn't, and what I could do better. But in terms of 11th step prayer meditation, I do say some prayers before I go to sleep at night, but at that time, it's not uh, anything big book related. It's more of a, my own personal uh, religious stuff. And in terms of being tired, I I used to experience that too, that by the time I got into bed, it was like I would start thinking about what I had to be doing and I was already asleep. So early on in uh program, I actually set my alarm to go off for an hour before I went to bed, and that was my sign that I start need to start winding down my day so that by the time you know, I was ready to go to bed, I would make sure that that got done. Thank you, Sherry, for the question. Anyone else with a question for Esther this morning? Hi, it's Carol, Compulsive Overeater. Carol, your turn. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, got a lot from that. Um, now then, I have a question. I heard you talk about pride and prejudice uh, blocking us off from God, but what about fear? Um I'm in step one. I'm in the insanity of being completely abstinent and really need God. And I know God can help me. My sickness is that I push God away like I would do human help. I've done emotionalism. Um, I've rewritten my higher powers um, credentials many times. But always it's the same. It's kind of if I have a God personal to me, he's going to know where I am. Um, 
how does the big book help a prospect like me, please? So, Carol, your question is, how does the big book help someone be fearless? Of, of God, yes, please. Right. I, I think that the simplicity of step two is just that we have to be willing to believe. I'm, I, I'm not sure that... Um, I think that many people, including myself, were wondering at this at this junction, what's God going to want from me? What's my life going to look like? What does it mean that this higher power is going to remove my problem? And, you know, thankfully, I moved the steps quickly enough, and my sponsor pushed me along that I, I didn't have that much time to think about it until the fear over overtake me. But the big book does say that we're that we need to be fearless. But the three um, reasons I gave you are, are three ideas that might help you um, overcome that obstacle because you don't have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. When you're when you're you know when you when you're standing and in order to save your life you got to jump. It's either jump or or die because to 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 stay where you are you already know where that's going to lead you to death. But to jump it's a, it's jumping into the unknown. But it's the we're here to tell you that that you could recover and you could be you know redeemed from the clutches of the disease so knowing that ought, ought to help someone take that giant leap when you're saving your life um, it, a person could be overcome with fear but but the alternative is to die i per, i suppose perhaps some people never make that leap and uh, and don't recover. Thanks. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you, Carol, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Susan. Susan, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning, Chalea, and good and good morning to Esther. Esther, thank you so much. That was wonderful. So. Um, I have another question. I heard Kathy's question about your day-to-day, and I have another question. I've, with God, I've been graced with surrender around some of the big ticket items, if you will, like the food. But then there's the smaller stuff, the, the little stuff that comes up. And, you know, this relates to this chapter because we read and you remind us that God is either everything or God is nothing. And if God is everything, then, you know, as a human being, I'm not going to be perfect, but I need to have the willingness, I believe, to surrender the small ticket items as well as the big ticket. And I just wondered on a day-to-day basis how you how how you bring the steps. I mean, I... I I do my thorough third columns and fourth columns around resentments, and I do my fear inventories. And still, when push comes to shove on some little things, I notice that you know that that surrender is uh, isn't always there. It's there a lot more than it was, but it isn't always there. I wonder what that's like for you, and if you could tell us about that a little bit. Is the question clear? And I'm sorry for the traffic in the background. Hi, Susan. Are you referring to surrender around specific uh, foods or surrender around... No, not at all. A specific no, life no, situation. That's the big ticket item that I'm saying I'm surrendered oh, okay. around. You know, life, little okay. little things. I should take, I should do this, 
but my will tells me to do that, even though God, I'm, 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 I'm experiencing God in that moment, I'm aware of God's will, and still I choose to do that. Again, around little things, but still, that's a block to me. So, right. thanks. I'm going to mute so that you don't have to hear my noise. Thanks for the question, Susan. I've, I found that there are many life situations which are persistent, um, and that there are many things for me that I, where resentments of fear come up repeatedly on the same issues, and I constantly have to clean them up, both big and small things. And it's in um, trying to get close to God, trying to understand what His will is for me, that that I'm developing my relationship with Him. So I don't think that if I have a concern, let's say about one of my children, a big concern that I perhaps a resentment if you're associated with it, so it comes up and I clean up. It's not that it's not going to come back again, but I believe that um, as it repeatedly appears in my life, that is my spiritual workout. And so in the issues that I'm not willing to let go of or that I'm having a hard time accepting or I'm having a hard time surrendering, in those issues and in my struggles with them, God is showing me where I still need to do more homework, whether it's uh, in pride, whether it's in relying solely on him and not in other things, right, relying on him and not in, you know, the amount of money I have in my bank account, things like that. And it's in the um, quest for understanding where I come to rely on him more and more. And one thing that someone once told me, she said, Esther, as long as God is not the only thing, in your life, as long as you're still relying on other things to provide you with that satisfaction or serenity you're looking for, to that degree, you're going to feel either fearful or unsettled. So I expect that until the, my last living day, I'm going to have still things that I need to surrender, right? We, we, this is a, a job that's never done. Um, but I, am, I do have the feeling that I'm moving closer and closer to my higher power, and I'm able to weather, as I get closer to God, I'm able to weather, you know, the ups and downs of life. I like to compare um, myself to a tree. So I'm this new little, little skinny little tree thing, right, that's been planted in new soil. A big book calls it new soil. And I, the tree has to now dig roots. And those, that, all that root digging is happening underground where you and I can't see it, but it's happening. And as long as the tree continues to dig roots, it's going to be able to weather everything that happens around it, whether it's a storm, whether it's a drought. And if you look, in the summer, sometimes there isn't rain for weeks. The grass dies. The plants that are sitting outside your house dies, but the trees don't die. Some of the leaves may start to wilt and wither, but the trees are still standing. Why? Because the trees have dug roots. They have been digging for ever um, more sources of nutrients and nourishment and water so when the hard times come, then they're able to withstand those hard times because of all the little things that they've been doing every day. And that's what I see myself as doing. So every day where, you know, there, there are weeks where a certain issue will come up five times a day where, again, I'll, I'll, I'll feel disappointed that, you know, this person is still struggling, you know, in a way that makes it hard on the family or, or whatever it is. And um, I often have conversations with God I'll say to God, God, I talk to him directly, I've got this problem. I know you're it, right? I know you're it, but but 
this is what I want. So, so help me. Help me become willing to surrender that. Help me to see that as a phony crutch to rely on and, that, and help me just want you more than anything else. And that helps me too because I'm in a relationship with God. I can be honest with God. I could tell him, you know, when I see the, 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 the dollar sign, you know, the numbers go up in the bank account, it excites me. I'm thinking that I don't need to rely on you anymore. You know, so help me not need to rely on that and, 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 and really want you more than anything because I know that my true serenity my happiness is going to come only from my relationship with you. And that's okay. And I could stumble and fall and I can, you know, you know over and over again, um, you know, uh, uh, struggle or stumble on the same issues. But I, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. That's part of living. That's part of growing, right? Part of growing is, is, is stumbling and, and not accepting and, and having days, you know, where I'm more stubborn than others. Um, so I hope that's helpful, Susan. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Sorry, thank you. I'm sorry, Leah. No problem. Thank you. And who's next this morning with a question related to Chapter 4, We Agnostics, or Step 2? Star one ton mute. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. This is Flory. Um, I wanted to thank you, Esther, for your share and your beautiful qualification. And thank you, Leah, for leading. And thank you for this meeting. Um, uh, my question is, um, I mean, the, the, the third step was the hardest for me, uh, but I'm getting much better. And one of the things that I pray every day, like three, four times a day, is the third step prayer. Now, I want to ask you, because that's what seems to be the way for me, and I want to know if you have the same experience, uh, acting as if you believe in a higher power when you were not there, did you find that helpful? Um, that's my question. Thank you. Hi, Flory. Thanks for the question. Um, certainly when I was in the step work, um, I had to act as if, you, when you're saying act as if um, I believed in a higher power, I mean, step two only asks us to be willing to believe. I have to say that I already did at that point, so it's not that I had to act as if, but one of the things that I learned from my own sponsor and I see when I work with others is that if you move to the steps at a steady clip, it's not going to be, you know, once you've made a decision, move on to the next. These are really decisions and conclusions I don't know if we necessarily need to know how, you know, how all this is going to unfold or what our life is going to look like. So I'm not sure what you're referring to when you say that, um, you know, step three, sometimes, you know, you're willing and sometimes not, and then sometimes you have to act as if. Um, step three is really just a decision. And I didn't have time really just for that sort of acting as if because, you know, step three I took on a Tuesday, and like that very night I was already, you know, printing up my worksheets and moving on to step four. Um, you know, just 
just trying to get through the steps as quickly as possible to finally see what God can do, and that was to relieve me of the obsession to bring on that, you know, that re- that uh, relief, that sort of freedom from from the bondage. And then already I had faith, right, because I had seen already what God could do, and I had seen his power somehow in a way that was unexplainable to me lift that obsession. So that sort of belief stage without the faith yet, it was a, just a short period of time. And I, I hope that answers your question, Flory. Thank you very much, Floy, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Hi, this is Debbie from New York. Yes, Debbie, your Um, turn. I just wanted to know what your opinion was on uh, how long someone should be abstinent before they start the stuff. A few minutes. <laughs> Meaning, once you, depending on when, how you come into program. If you've, you know, if you've got a working food plan, I think that as soon as you get abstinence, start the step work. I mean, chop, uh, step one is is reading and understanding the doctor's opinion and, and Bill's story, and then writing your own history of eating. So that could take, you know, a week or or more. So before you actually come to the clu- conclusion of step one. Um, you have all that time to make sure that your abstinence is solid and works for you. Um, I don't think there needs to be a gap of time between when you become abstinent and when you start the step work. I think if you call it, you get a new sponsor on Monday and you've got a food plan you know that works for you and eliminates your binge foods, start the steps you don't you don't know how long your pink cloud stage is gonna last. You don't know how long you're gonna be able to hold your breath until you get to step nine, why tempt fate? Why not get through the steps and recover and you know, and then uh and move from, move on from there. I, I don't see why a person needs to wait. I understand that there's some people who come to program really having no clue really having no clue as to what a nutritious food plan looks like and so with some of those people it could take even up to a week until they learn how to even until they learn what the food groups are. You know, um, but that's that's different than just being absent and doing nothing with your time, other than making phone calls, like perhaps, and going to meetings, and, until some magical number appears. I don't know, 30 days, 90 days of abstinence, and then starting the steps. That that isn't what we learn here. Do them, do them, do them, one after the next, after the next. You know, you don't want to you want to outrun your mental obsession. You don't want the mental obsession to overtake you before you get to step nine, because then you'll be back in the food. So that's my answer to that. Debbie, thank you for the question. Anyone else this morning? Questions for Esther? Uh, This is Colleen from Utah. I have a quick question. Go ahead. And thank you, Esther, so much for your share. You said that you already had a strong conviction of higher power or God, but that your ego blocked you. Could you expand on that just a little? Thanks. Right, so I I believed in God and had very uh, sincere religious practices, but I I had also a lot of ideas about the way I wanted the world to be, and they weren't happening. So then I I was annoyed, <laughs> and in step three I realized, so you know step two was a little simpler because I already had belief in higher power, although in chapter 
before, we agnostics, I understood that I was blocked from that higher power. But when I came to the decision in step three, I I was taught that my higher power is going to relieve me um, of my obsession, right? It's going to give me that power. But I am blocked from that power. So in, in step three, I realized I better do things according to the will of my higher power. Otherwise, of what use is any of that power, right? Like, if God could relieve me of my obsession, then I ought to get out of the way, live life according to the will of God, my God, and and have him remove this obsession, right? I, I didn't want to be enslaved anymore to the to the disease. And once I made that decision, I immediately, I set about in step four to do a little inventory of, of uh do a, little, do a little inventory to determine what are those things that are blocking me. What are those character defects that block me from my higher power? And that's the purpose of steps four through nine, to remove the things that block us. And so now I am, have access. I am this vessel which can now accept and, and, and uh, flourish under the, you know, the, 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 the grace of, of my higher power. And that's what 10-step is for me every day. It's constantly removing the things that block me. Because if I'm blocked from my higher power, I have no access to that higher power, and, you know, two, three, four days could go by, and then suddenly I'm thinking, is it lunchtime yet? And then I know, of course, you've, you know, you've blocked access. I, ca- I can never be lazy about doing my 10-step work if I want to remain unblocked, if I want to keep the channels open and, and be open and, and, and empty to be filled with, with God's grace. Thank you so much. Thank you, Colleen, for that question. Who's next? Hey, it's Hilda. Hi, this is Anita. I heard Anita, but I heard someone before Anita. Who's that? Hilda. Hilda, go ahead, and then Anita. Thank you so much. Um, I I don't know if this is a question or a response or some inquiry here. Um, I was working with a sponsor that I no longer have um, because it was just too quick. I, I met them in Vision for You, and they recruited me to another OA offshoot. And she was working me, and I'm, I'm still I'm bringing this up because I feel like I'm, I've done something that I'm not understanding something about the pace of the steps. Um, it, it looked like I had to do all the steps, like to step 12, in a week and a half, and I got really, really overwhelmed. Um, and it was their understanding um, this other program, part of OA. Um, that it, you know that it kind of has to be done fast, and because of that, I haven't done it. I mean, I'm, I've been abstinent. Uh, thank God, you know, um, for over two weeks, the first time in my life, off the white sugar and and flat white flour, sugar and white flour, and just really lose, you know, losing my weight and everything, and connected to God and praying and making calls. But is there? I mean, to me, the pace um, was too fast. That it was like. A, maybe two weeks and I, I'm done, you know, with the steps. I'm not repeating them, but done the first time around. Can you help me with that, please? Sure, Hilda. I'll try to offer up something useful. Um, when we when we suggest that the steps be done at a steady pace, and we mean qu- quickly, but, but of course thoroughly, and, and, um, and that we should understand what the big book has to teach us now, my understanding is when we talk about doing the steps as, as quickly as we can, it's, it's through steps nine because 
10 and 11 and 12 are ones that we're going to really be doing over and over again on a daily ba- basis for the you know for as long as we want to stay recovered and so you know we're we're not talking about a lot of pages about 90 pages um and so it shouldn't take too long uh, and if you i guess if you include the, the pages of the doctor's opinion i guess it's a little over 100 pages so it, it shouldn't take too long to to get through the steps now for everyone's going to be different clearly someone with many more uh daily uh, family commitments is going to work at a slower pace but it really depends on how desperate you are i i've i've done the steps with people where they've taken you know their vacation from work for two and a half weeks and they were willing to work an hour or two a day and they completed the steps in you know in two and a half three weeks and you know and there are people who've done it you know over several months and i would say a couple months is usually average I'm always willing to move as fast as they're willing to move because I understand the great necessity of getting through steps and I can't say that every one of them does. And, um, you know, is it possible to do the steps too quickly? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't believe that the early uh, alcoholics who recovered spent a lot of time, you know, doing the steps. I I, I think that... um Many of them were so desperate, obviously many of them in hospitals, right? Many of the uh, alcoholics that Dr. Bob dealt with were in the hospital, so they weren't doing anything else. They had no jobs. They were kicked out of their families, and they had time to, you know, come to these conclusions and do the action work and then recover. So I I don't – I'm not sure if there's something called too quickly. Um, And I I really – I don't know what would – what would be the right amount of time that it takes to digest everything? I I also don't think um, that a person has to understand everything uh, in in, this, in the sense that as long as you that you know what you need to do and just do it. I mean, I've reviewed the big book with a big book study such as The Vision for You maybe six or seven times over the last four or five years. Every time I review it, my understanding grows. I don't need to have today's level of understanding in order to recover. I just need to understand the steps simply enough, understand you know, the words as they are written, and all that deeper understanding will come with time. But, again, it depends how long you think you can stay absent. I mean, if, 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 if a person comes into program and the most that they can string together is a few weeks of absence, so they don't really have six months to do the steps because their mental obsession is going to outrun them. Maybe they ought to you know, put aside everything just for the time it takes and, and just, you know, quickly go through that in a couple of weeks. I, I don't see why there's anything wrong with that. And that and that would be what some people would need to do. I hope that's helpful, Hilda. Thank you. Yes. Hilda, thank you for that question. Let's move on to Anita now. Hello? Is Hi. this Anita? Hi, yes. Mm-hmm. Hi, thank you so much uh, for your service, Leah. And thank you... Thank you very very much, Esther. Um, my question is, um, I'm just wondering about uh, people who say OA is a cult or uh, we are being brainwashed. Uh, I had to, when I, for instance, when I came into OA, I had to, I had a lot of fear um, around um, coming up with my own conception of a higher power. And it was very hard for me to walk through those fears in the beginning. And, um, of course, each one is a personal personal um, 
journey. But um, I was just wondering if you could address that a little bit. Thank you. So it sounds like you had two questions. Number one, what to respond to those who consider OA a cult. And what was the second question? Yeah, just how as um, um, how um, that's about it. <laughs> the first question that you addressed, just um, walking through those fears of um, um, personal fears of having our own conception of God, uh, and then coupled with um, peer pressure, saying uh, that it's a, a a cult or that we're being brainwashed. Thank you. Okay. I've heard people say that, and maybe people, I think people have said that to me as well. So I don't, you know, I don't argue with them. I say, I, I don't think it's a cult if you look up what the traditional definition of a cult is. And uh, I, I know, I mean, people who have never showed up at a meeting, I can't speak to them because they're really not speaking from experience, but Perhaps people have come to a few meetings and feel that there's something a little weird about it, and you know, you say this prayer at the end, and in some meetings they hold hands. So again, I, I just, I, I, I'm not out to prove anything or disprove anything. I just tell them, you know, the way I see it, that it isn't a cult. It certainly doesn't fit the traditional um, definition of a cult, and and that many people are uncomfortable with uh, the idea of a spiritual group. And I understand that, and so I understand these people. And many people are uncomfortable with the idea of being part of a spiritual group, which is not their usual, um, like associated with their usual religion or faith. So, so that that's come up. My only answer to all of them is, this is working for me. My life's improved in every way. I stopped eating compulsively, and I'm a healthy body weight. So. Whatever you want to call the program of Overeaters Anonymous, you can call, but everything about my life has has become better. So I'm sold and I'm here. Um, And that's not necessarily the case, you know, with people who join cults, right? But um, again, I'm not out there to debate or or even even if I didn't know what a cult was, I would just say it's working for me, so I'm staying. Um, Now... I don't have to share my personal conception of a higher power with with everyone who asks me because, again, there might be some people, you know, who who worship differently than me or who had different journeys. And, um, you know, some program calls me up and we share the same religious values and they want to, you know, bounce off some ideas. I certainly welcome that. But that's it's my personal conception of a higher power. So, you know, I don't know if I share that in a public way. And are you, are you saying that there's something about having your own conception that uh, instills in you fear because others might judge it? Um, I, I be, I'm, I've been able to go through this. My, I believe I've gone through this, um, through those blockades that I'm talking about. But um, I basically um, wanted to hear how you would present that to a newcomer, present those um, your feelings on that to a newcomer, um, because uh, I believe that many of us had to walk through some of those and uh, fears, and if there are newcomers on the phone, it would be helpful to hear what your take on that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I used to spend a lot more time convincing newcomers. I mean, certainly when, when I get called or speak to people, I'm happy to share what I know. But, you know, I I don't have to sell OA. Um, you know, the food will will take care of them if they're real compulsive overeaters. Right. I used to I used to go around, you know, <laughs> trying to prove the things. I used to be a little bit of a, a preacher when I first came into OA, and I got myself into some pretty sticky situations where I had to turn around and make amends to some people. And now I'm like, I say to myself, Esther, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. If they're real compulsive overeaters, um, they'll they'll come back or they won't. Right? They know where you are, and and if people outside a program, let's say, who think that I have stra- the strange part of my life. That's okay. Thank you. Hello? Thanks, Anita. Thanks, Anita, for the question. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, and your name, please. Hi, I'm Donna. I'm a compulsive overeater. Welcome. Go ahead. Thank you, everyone, for your service. Esther, I really, really appreciated your presentation. Thank you so much. Esther, I have a question. Um... I um, am, I'm really pretty new to the program, but I feel like I'm getting little inklings of, of change in the promises. And I wanted to ask you when, what are the quality, what is the, the, the um, I guess the qualities that, that help you to know that when you are um, doing God's will or aware of what God's will is for you. What What is kind of the, the sense that you get where you say, yes, I think I am aligned with God's will on, on this particular issue or, or whatever's going on in your, in your life? Would you mind sharing about that? Sure, I'll try. Thanks, Donna. What a, one of the things I learned is in in the program of recovery from the big book is that uh, my resentments and fears are an indication where I'm running on self-will and not God's will. So oftentimes I'll know something wasn't God's will after the fact by the outcome. So one of the things that the big book teaches me is to make sure that I, before I act, I rid myself of any residual resentments and fears. And resentments don't only have to be like deep anger. It could be annoyance, frustration, anything like that, um, if I'm feeling intolerant. So when I've you know, acted according to my best thinking and I have no, uh, none of those uh, you know, fe- fears or resentments or worries or anxieties, when I act, then, then that, I presume that I've, I've acted according to God's will. I haven't um, had any... <laughs> revelations or anything like that so but but to me my way of knowing is to see the results of my living so i can look back at as the years you know the past four almost four years and see that life has improved my relationships have improved everything's improved in my life so while there were many 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 times where i acted according to esther's will um it looks like acting according to god's will you know, was the majority of the time, and so therefore life has improved for me, and I hope that it continues this way. So I don't have, 
that, that's my way of determining. I, again, I'm not a very, I'm not what you call the mountaintop type of gal, and so I don't have revelation or something like that. Sometimes I just get a certain sense, and when I have big decisions to make, I'll stop and do a little meditation. And again, just make sure I'm clear of any um, any of that block, any of those blockages, and, and then I believe that the outcome will be according to God's will. Thank you, Esther. That was beautiful. Thanks for everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Donna. Anyone else with a question this morning? Please stay muted if you're not speaking. Thank you. Anyone else with a question for Esther? Hi, this is Frances from New York. Hi, Frances. Welcome. Go ahead. Thanks. I just wanted to ask, I know you went out of it before about meditation, but I just wanted to know if you like ever do any guided meditations. I'm just kind of stuck on the meditation part um, in terms of what I should do in the morning because there is some kind of formal, you know, structured prayer that I have in my, you know, religion, you know, that I was born into. I feel like maybe meditation is different because it's more of my own personal thing. So I wanted to know if you could elaborate a little on that and in terms of help me, helping me figure it out and also when to meditate. Does it have to be first thing in the morning? Can it be in the afternoon? You know, stuff like that. Sure. Thanks, Francis, for the question. Um, so I, I, try, I, do, I, I do believe that I should be starting my day with meditation. The big book suggests that I do, and I think that's a good thing, especially for me, because it sets me up for the day, right? Otherwise, I wake up, jump out of bed, and then it's like Zoom, you know, trying to get through my list. And that meditation is good to to center me, um, to remind me of what why I'm here. It's similar to um, soldiers, you know, they have, what do you call it, the morning where they're all lined up, they're reminded of, you know, where, where their allegiance to, what they're meant to do, and then they go out and do their stuff. So that's how I see myself. Good morning, God. Here I am. I'm here to do your will. What are my marching orders? Um, so my meditation, which is now approximately half an hour, is, is approximately divided into three parts. The, the first part is I just try to connect in a deep and spiritual way. In a we call just think about the universe. Think about matters of the soul. Just whatever works for me. And then I move into just you know deep gratitude for the. the gifts in my life, both large and small. And then I turn to God, and, and and that's the part where I read from the big book. I have a little piece of paper that actually I, I keep under my pillow because you know I haven't managed to memorize it yet, where I where I consider my plans for the day. I'm actually just pulling it out now. Uh, here we are. I have this little piece of paper under my pillow, and it, it says, Upon Awakening, I'm asking you, God, to direct my thinking. I ask that, especially that my thinking be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, and self-seeking motives. Then it says to think about the 24 hours ahead. So I sort of think about what the day is going to look like, meaning who I'm going to interact with. If I have any moments where I may be faced with indecision, I pray I ask you for inspiration, intuitive thought, or decision. So I'm actually reading through this. And then I finish that up with the third-step prayer and the seventh-step prayer. And... Then throughout the day, you mentioned at other parts of the day, I do, I do uh, use the time when I eat again to uh, uh, more moments of gratitude and reflection with God, and 
I have uh, another half hour during the day where I do prayers, not related to the big book, my own personal uh, religious stuff. And I also use music sometimes to get me into a centered state. So it might not be like, uh, you know, a formal meditation, but uh, but let's say before something big is happening where I'm apt to be, you know, off-center or in self-will or in pride, I often use music, good spiritual music, to remind me, you know, that I'm here to do God's will and not here to, uh, you know, get something from everybody in the room or whatever it is. So I hope that that helps you. Yeah, thank you. I Just one more question based on what sure. you just told me. That prayer you said upon awakening, is that a prayer in the big book? Is that a prayer that you formulated? Oh, no. So the big book um, gives us instructions, suggestions, and how we can, you know, start our day. So I'm just going to turn to that. I'll just tell you what page that is. It, it's If you look on page uh, 80, 86, it says, upon awakening, we consider, let's think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we, be, we begin, we ask God to direct our thinking. So it's all there in the big book. What I did was I went through those pages, pages 85 to the end of the chapter, and I picked out, you know, all the questions I would want to ask myself, you know, in the morning that would sort of set me, you know, realign me to, you know, be, to do God's work. And uh, like you. I said, I put on a piece of paper. It's under my pillow. so that it, uh, I get to it every morning. No excuses. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Francis, thank you so much. And anyone else that has a question this morning? Um, yes, I uh, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, uh, your name, Dana. please? Dana. Dana, hi, I'm Dana. A- Good morning. Could we hi. keep it to hi. questions, please? Sure. I'm a compulsive reader, and I really like your idea of keeping the, um, I think it's the prayer on awakening under your pillow. Um, (laughs) That's a great idea. And also um, music as kind of uh, an opening to um, uh, just positive positive, uh, atmosphere and uh, feelings. Um, I like to use um, the Reiki channel of Pandora. It's a lovely, lovely uh, station to use. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out. And thanks for being here and sharing your experience. Dana, thanks, thank Dana. You. I just want to reiterate that whatever works for someone, I again, I'm grateful to my sponsor for teaching me that meditation doesn't have to be done. Uh, in a specific way, and uh, she told, she has told me that people, and I've used this as well, although the weather's not always so good up here in Toronto, but that people would, would walk in, in nature, and that would be a time of uh, um, deep meditation because the visuals of the, you know, the beauty of the outdoors would infuse a person with thoughts of, you know, matters of the spirit and God. So, and that works for me. Um, sometimes I need a little... Um, something that will get me into a certain mood, you know, a God-centered mood. Thank you, Tina. Any questions this morning? Leah? Yes. Hi, good morning. This is Mary Moo from California. 
Good morning. Questions, um, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my question is about the uh, uh, meditation. Um, it says, does it say somewhere in the big book that we can, uh, depending on whether you're agnostic, atheist, it doesn't matter, or tradition, whatever your tradition is, uh, Christian, Jewish, uh, whatever that belief system is, does it say in the big book somewhere that we can uh, ask our, it says, ask your priest, minister, or rabbi for help. Uh, there's many helpful books. There are many helpful books about prayer. Uh, refresh my memory. Is there something about ask your priest, minister, or rabbi uh, regarding books, regarding prayer? I could answer that question, Mary Lou. On page 87, the second paragraph, at the end of that paragraph, it says, if we belong to a religious denomination which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. If not members of religious bodies, we sometimes select and memorize a few set prayers which emphasize the principles we have been discussing. There are many helpful books also. Suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, or rabbi. Be quick to see where religious people are right. Make use of what they offer. So if that helps. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Lou. I want to just interject here, Leigh, if I may, with something in that, as we know, meditation is an important part of the day of a recovered compulsive overeater, um, but one, that one does not need to know how to meditate or in step two, um, you know, that that's not a requirement in step two, nor do we need to really agonize over how we're going to do it or what it's going to look like when we're in step two. So uh, certainly we could explore things related to you know, prayer and meditation, but I just I want to reemphasize that step two is really just coming to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And that was one of my struggles because I expected it to be some grand spiritual experience, which it wasn't. It was just a simple kind of settled uh, settle feeling inside that I had made that decision, and I just wanted to point that out again. Thanks, Leah, for indulging me. Thank you. Of course, yes. Important reminder that the steps are in an order for a specific reason. One step elevates us to the next step. Yes. Any other questions related to step two or anything found in chapter four, we agnostics? Going once, twice, and three times. I'll consider that all minds are cleared. Again, thank you, Esther, for developing what the big book teaches us in Chapter 4, We Agnostics, and for sharing your fascinating insights and personal experience related to step two with us this morning. Thank you so much, and I'll close the meeting this Could morning. Could we get Esther's phone number? Esther, would you like to offer your phone number on the recording? Sure. My number in Canada, Eastern Standard Time in Toronto, Canada, is 416-789-5300.
Thank you. And thanks again for all the questions this morning. And I'm going to close with the reading from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.